The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. So that we might become a spirit-filled people. Serving and loving each other. Serving and loving this community. Serving and loving the nations. It's so easy for us to come and just sing words. But convict us. As you empower us to do your work, may we turn from the sin in our lives. And Lord, even now as we think of various sins that we commit, sins against you, sins of disobedience, as we think of them right now, Father, and confess them to you. You work in us. Thank you for your church. The gathered church today around the world worshiping you. And we pray that your church might be effective even here in our home. That your church might make a difference. That your church might be the people of God you've Call us to be not just some institution that enjoys the fellowship of each other and then goes home to live our lives, but a powerful influence in a positive way. And Lord, are these dark times around our world, this church is needed more than ever. Restore us. Renew us. Revive us. For our church, Father, we understand that there are members in our fellowship who need a healing touch from you. We have homebound members who are at home today, and most of them probably want to be here more than some of us want to be here. And we just pray that you would minister to them and use us as a church to minister to them. And there's some that are sick, Lord. We pray for your healing power. We pray, Lord, that uh, our missionaries might sense the prayers of your people for them today. For those we support and those that our denomination supports, Lord, as they lead their work, especially those who are in places that are not safe, risking their lives for the gospel. Oh, God, protect them. And use us to provide the support that they need. We've gathered today because... 
your word changed our hearts. At some time in our lives, we confessed with our mouth the Lord Jesus because of your word's work in our hearts. Lord, do it again. Do it again as our pastor proclaims that word, even again today. For your glory and your glory alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we looked at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. If you're a guest with us this morning, no, it is not dress-up day at church. Maybe reservist, and when I leave this ministry this morning, I need to go to that ministry straight away, so I um, needed to come dressed appropriately this morning for that, so I don't, because I don't have time to change. So I was walking down the hallway this morning, and someone saw me at the other end and said, oh, don't you look cute. Like Pastor Frank, I said, that, that's what I was shooting for. I was shooting for cute this morning. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's the word of the Lord. Exactly 462 years ago yesterday, a godly man died. His name is John Rogers. Unless you've studied church history at some point in your life, you would likely be unaware of who John Rogers is. John Rogers uh, was ordained as a Catholic priest in the 1500s in England. He came to understand the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and converted to Christ for real. Became a Protestant pastor after that, pastor in London in 1534. He, early in his life, met a man by the name of William Tyndale. Maybe you've heard of Tyndale. Tyndale was instrumental in translating the Bible into uh, English. And Tyndale never finished his work of translating the whole Bible because he was captured and he was arrested before he could complete his work, but he was accompanied by this man, John Rogers, whom Tyndale had shared the gospel with and whom had come to Christ under Tyndale's influence. 
fact, Rogers was there the day that Tyndale was to be arrested. He gathered up all of Tyndale's works because if they had fallen in the hands of his arresters, they would have been burned. Rogers captured all of those things, snuck out a back way and escaped, and he finished the work that Tyndale began. Of course, during the 1500s in England, things are going on. There's this massive um, competition, if you will, for the hearts of the people between the Catholics and the Protestants, and it all depended upon who sat upon the throne as to which one was in power. Hated each other, and without spending a whole lot of time on that history, suffice it to say, uh, Rogers escaped after Tyndale's uh, capture and left the country and finished the work, and after, uh, after King Henry died, he comes back to England under a, 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 a better king, more, um, uh, more kindly towards them, towards the Protestants, comes to, to the throne. Uh, Rogers comes back and he begins to preach in England. Uh, but not too long after that, um, the king dies. Lady Jane Grey takes the the throne. She's only on the throne for about nine days. She too was a Protestant, but she requested Rogers come and preach at the main cathedral there in London, St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, but she was only on the throne for nine days when Bloody Mary takes over the throne. A devout Catholic who hated the Protestants and hated the Protestant preachers the most. And so Rogers had a target on his head the moment Mary comes to the throne. Mary summarily has Rogers arrested. He had a chance to flee, we're told. He had news that he was to be arrested, but he chose to preach instead. Was arrested, was brought before a trial there in London. Uh, he was imprisoned for a year or more, uh, treated ha- very harshly in prison. Brought back out of prison after a year, stood before a tribunal once again sentenced to death for the crime of, quote, denying the Christian character of the church at Rome and for, quote, denying the real presence of Christ in the sacraments. When placed on trial at that final trial, it was made clear to him that his life was on the line. He said at that particular trial, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The next day, John Rogers is led out of the prison that he had been in, and he's led to Smithfield on foot. And, of course, the word had gotten out what was, what was going down. And so on the way to Smithfield, the, the streets were, uh, were, were lined with people waiting to see what was going to happen. Many of those who lined the streets were the very congregants to whom John Rogers had preached In the crowd that day also stood uh, John Rogers' wife and his 10 of his 11 children. Um, Very productive pastor in many ways. His youngest was a year old, and he had never seen that child because the child was born while he was in prison. He had requested, by the way, of the sheriff who was in charge of these last movements of his life, Could he speak with his wife just briefly uh, before being led to the fire? His request was, of course, denied. Being told that he had been a Catholic priest and Catholic priests could not marry, and so his marriage was not valid. He's led by foot to Smithfield to 
a crowd that lines the streets made up of his family and congregants and others who would be watching. He's led to the place where the stake is placed in the ground not far from the church uh, with the pulpit in which he had preached many times. There was a pardon brought to the scene that day. And he was offered a pardon if he would just simply recant his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and affirm the doctrine of the Catholic Church. To which he said he could never do such a thing. The sheriff who was offering the pardon says to, says to Rogers, well then, I will never pray for you. Which if you were a Catholic in that day, is another, just another way of saying, I hope you rot in a horrible place. To which Rogers replies, that's okay. I will pray for you. On the way to that spot, he was quoting Psalm 51 along the way. The crowds, in fact, oddly enough, of his congregants were cheering for John Rogers. Can you imagine? Why do you think the crowds would be cheering for their pastor? Yeah. Yeah, they were. They wanted to encourage the man. They knew what he was facing. And they wanted his faith to stand all the way to the end. Of course, Rogers is tied to the stake. The fire is lit, and his body eventually consumed at the stake 462 years ago yesterday. John Rogers' experience was not isolated during that season in the history of England. There were many others who were martyred in similar ways under Bloody Mary. I tell you that story and another one that I'll share in just a moment because I want you to understand what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 is not distant truth for people centuries ago. It was very relevant truth for a man in the 1500s. But if that's too far away from today, maybe we should talk about a man by the name of Richard Wormbrand. Have you heard of him? He founded a ministry called the Voice of the Martyrs. It's still very much active and at work today, uh, all around the world, shining a light on the various places in the world where people are suffering for their faith. I reread this past week one of Richard Wormbrand's books called Tortured for Christ. Richard Wormbrand was a Protestant pastor. He was a Jewish man who converted to Christ in a very fascinating sort of way that I don't have time to tell you this morning, but if you read his book, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find it fascinating. Came to Christ um, out of a Jewish background and eventually became a Protestant minister in Romania in the mid-1900s, 1948. Um, as communism swept through Romania and the communist leadership took over that nation, one of the things that they often did, well, frankly, in that day, always did when they took over a place, was they began to arrest Christians and imprison them and began to try and convert their way of thinking to communism. You can read all about that in Tortured for Christ. And Richard Wormbrand was a pastor who was preaching the gospel, who was arrested by the communist leadership and imprisoned for 14 years of his life. He, six years, the first time he got out for a while, was told never to preach again. He, of course, preached again, was arrested, and spent another good eight years in prison. Just to get a flavor for what that was like, some little excerpts from his experience is, is 
I'll give you this morning and you can read the book for yourself and get the full story. He says in prison, Christians were hung upside down on ropes and beaten so severely that their bodies swung back and forth under the blows. Christians were also placed in icebox, quote, refrigerator cells, which were so cold that frost and ice covered the inside. I was thrown into one while I had very little clothing on. Prison doctors would watch through an opening until they saw symptoms of freezing to death. Then they would give the signal and the guards would rush in and take us out and make us warm. When we were finally warmed, it would immediately be put back into the icebox to freeze again. Thawing out, freezing to within minutes of death, then being thawed out over and over again. He says, even today there are times when I can't bear to open a refrigerator He says Christians were sometimes forced to stand in wooden boxes only slightly larger than they were or than we were. This left no room to move. Dozens of sharp nails were driven into every side of the box with their razor sharp tip points sticking through the wood. While we stood perfectly still, it was all right. But we were forced to stand in these boxes for endless hours. When we became fatigued or swayed with tiredness, the nails would pierce our bodies. If we moved or twitched a muscle... There were the horrible nails. He goes on to describe other things that I couldn't read to you in in a crowd this morning. He goes on to say things in that book like, when I looked at the torturers who did these horrible things to us, he said, I learned something from them. As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I would not leave the smallest place for Satan in mine. Richard Wormbrand was one of the fortunate ones. After 14 years, he was able to be released to Norway. His, uh, his story is similar, or the stories he tells of those prison visits are similar to the stories of John Rogers. It's not fire, it's other ways. But that's not too far removed from our day and time, is it? 1948 into the early 60s? Some of you were alive then. Okay, many of you were alive then. I was not. But that's within a generation of me. So what Peter writes many, many years ago to first century believers was incredibly applicable in the 1500s to men like John Rogers and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and others. It was incredibly pertinent to Richard Wormbrand and many others in Romania in the the mid-1900s. And it's incredibly relevant to people all around our world right this very moment. It just so happens that you and I live in a place where it's harder for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Because we're isolated from such things. But we're not promised permanent isolation from such things. And so Peter writes these words, and they're words written to every believer of every generation. For those... For whom the suffering is very real at the moment, it has immediate application for others, perhaps like us, for whom it is not quite on the horizon. It serves to do a couple of things, to prepare us should that day arise in our lifetime. And it serves to put our own suffering in a bit of perspective. So as we work through this text this morning, what I want to do is show you what Peter has to say about Suffering, particularly suffering for the cause of Christ. And I want to illustrate from selections of tortured for Christ 
how these points become extremely real in life when you find yourself in that situation. This is the third time Peter has addressed this issue in First Peter. If you've been tracking along with us for these months, you remember in chapter 1, we dealt with the same very, very same thing. Just a couple pages over in your Bible, right out of the chute, Peter talks about, um, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Talks about their fiery trials and how God is using that to purify their faith. A couple pages over in chapter 3, just a few months ago, back in November, we saw the same issue come up once again. Peter brings it up. Talks about suffering there. And in chapter 4, he brings it up again. So we presume that this is a, a pressing issue in the lives of those to whom he's writing for him to re- recount this issue three times in a relatively short letter, right? It must have been particularly pertinent to those to whom he's writing. So this morning, uh, what he says in this section of chapter 4 is quite similar to what he said in the other places. We'll note that as we move along. There are a couple of new pieces that he adds to the picture And I'll point those out as well, and we'll try to illustrate it and find some application. We pray that the Spirit of the Lord would help us to not see this text as something so abstract from our lives that it has no value. Uh, The way I want to organize this is just kind of some, I called it navigating the fiery trials. Um, It's basically just some, some steps or some principles, if you will, in navigating Suffering And the suffering, it's important for us to note, the suffering Peter's writing about is particularly suffering for the cause of Jesus. Okay, We've got to get that right at the outset. It's not just every kind of suffering, it's particularly suffering because of your faith. Now, it applies in, in other ways to other kinds of suffering as well, but it's important for us to keep in front of us what Peter is particularly addressing here. So the first thing he, he tells those to whom he's writing is this. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when suffering comes into your life. The way he says it is, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be shocked when persecution for your faith arises as though something special is happening to you. Why would Peter say such a thing to people who are suffering? Well, he says it because I think that's the natural inclination of our hearts when suffering tends to come into our life. When suffering comes into our life, particularly unjust suffering, right? When that comes into our life, we we tend to react with shock and with dismay and with questions like, why is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve such things? As though something special were happening to us. And Peter is wanting to push back against that natural inclination of the heart and saying, don't be surprised. Your reaction should not be surprised when this happens to you. In fact, it seems that Peter's indicating you should be surprised when it's not happening to you. But you should expect it. He says, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. He doesn't say if it comes upon you. Don't be surprised if you should at some point experience some suffering. He says, don't be shocked when it happens. With the indication that it's going to happen at some point. And if you're somebody for whom it hasn't happened, you are not the rule, you're the exception. That's the point Peter's trying to make here. And I think that's an important point for people in 2017 America to note. 
particularly Christians in this nation. We are not the rule. We are the exception to the rule historically. The fact that we live and move and breathe and worship and share the gospel and study God's word and gather like we have this morning in peace with, with essentially no fear that anyone's going to bust down the doors and drag off your pastor or throw you in jail. That is the exception, not the rule. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that trials are to be expected. We see it in John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He says in Matthew 10, when he's sending his disciples out, verse 22 and following, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? They've treated me this way. You can expect that they're going to treat you this way. The closer you are to living like I live, and the closer you are to speaking like I speak, the more... You're going to be treated like I've been treated. Second Timothy verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And John writes in 1 John 3, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. All saying the same thing Peter says, Don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you. That word fiery is a word that means agonizing experience. The agonizing experience of being burnt with fire. Think John Rogers, if you want a vivid illustration of that. But he relates that back to the same sort of imagery that he was using in chapter 1 when he talks about a fire that purifies and melts down and purifies gold and burns off the dross. And the result is a pure, a pure gold that comes out the other side. And so it is that imagery is really sort of a vivid reminder that all of our unjust suffering is really a, 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 a part of God's sovereign work in our life. When, when unjust suffering, suffering comes our way, it comes our way not as, as an exception to the sovereignty of God, but it comes as a part of the sovereignty of God in our life. And he's using it for purposes that are good, ultimately. He's told us back in chapter 1 and chapter 3 that there are two ways that God uses suffering in our life, particularly unjust suffering. Uh, The first is that it validates our faith. That is to say that when suffering comes in our life and we maintain our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it proves that we belong to Him. Suffering has a way of burning off the people who really don't know Christ but attach themselves to the Christian church. And so God will use suffering to make it clear who belongs to Him and who doesn't. And the way you know is those who hold on to their faith in the fire belong to Christ. And the ones that abandon their faith don't. So he uses it to validate our faith and he uses it to purify our faith. It's through the the fire, through the crucible of suffering and unjust suffering and suffering for our faith that that God burns off the dross and the sin in our life and he purifies within us a faith. He he develops within us a, a quality of character that can't be developed any other way. So that's what he does with suffering. Back when I was in chaplain school, I had the opportunity to go down to Paris Island to uh, Marine Corps boot camp and spend a couple of days there and watch Marines go through boot camp. If you've never seen that, it's a sight to behold. We got to see the yellow footprints on the ground. Every Marine who's in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about when I say the yellow footprints on the ground, don't you? You know. 
Because when you go to boot camp, you arrive on a bus and you get off of that bus and, well, you get off of that bus in a hurry because there's guys with big hats that rush on that bus and start screaming at you in your face and you are scared silly and you run wherever you can run and the only way is out of the bus. And when you get out of that bus, there's a bunch of yellow footprints on the ground so you know exactly where to stand. And the moment you hit those yellow footprints, life as you know it is turned upside down for many weeks. Many weeks. Um, The moment you hit those yellow footprints, there are people yelling and screaming at you, and that doesn't end anytime soon, night or day. We got to sort of jump in and see Marines the first week that they were there, early in the morning doing their PT at like 5 o'clock in the morning. And these poor kids are running like scared chickens with people screaming at them everywhere they go. They don't know where to go. They're just running. Scared to death. Immature. We got to drop in at other points along the pipeline. We got to see your graduation class. And I can tell you the difference between those guys that first week running around out there like little boys and the men that you see at graduation moving in perfect unison and an absolute remarkable precision at a graduation ceremony. You find it hard to believe that they're the same people. And any Marine will tell you that boot camp is not a fun place to be. Boot camp is not fun, but it's effective. See, it's the only way to make Marines. It's not fun, but when you come out on the other side, you find that it's been effective. By the way, how many of you in here are Marines? If you're you're a Marine, stand. Stand up. Let's see you. Let's see how many Marines we have here this morning. Yeah. I knew there were several. Two, three, four, six. Praise the Lord. Right, you guys gonna have this. Am I am I telling the truth, men? Okay. Um, but what I realized in watching that is the only way you get that product on the end is to go through the process in between in all those weeks. It's the only way. It's not fun, but it's effective. And it's the same way God uses suffering and unjust suffering in the lives of believers. That suffering is not fun, but it's very effective, because God builds within us a character trait and quality. That doesn't show up any other way except the fire. And Peter wants these believers to know, don't be surprised as though something is happening to you that's not happened to anyone else. Listen, you're not alone in the middle of all this. When the fire is burning, you're not alone. There are so many others that are with you. You're not by yourself as though some strange thing has happened to you. And so because of that, in verse 13, he says, Don't, not only do you, should you not be surprised, but you can choose joy in the middle of it. When it comes, don't be surprised. Instead, choose joy. He says, rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ. Again, he circles back to the same issue he brought up in chapter 1. The issue of in the middle of suffering, joy is an option. There is a way in the midst of suffering when it comes into our lives that shock and surprise can be replaced by joy. And it can be replaced by choice. He's commanding something here. And he doesn't command things that can't be done. Joy is a choice we make. You and I don't have control over when suffering is going to come normally. Particularly unjust suffering and the kind that comes for our faith. We don't have control over when it comes. We do have control over how we respond to it. Right? 
And so Peter is saying, you don't control when it happens or how it comes or how long it stays, but you can control what you do in the midst of it and how you choose to respond to it. And he says the same thing James says in James chapter 1 when he says, consider it joy, a pure joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. We can choose it. Chuck Swindoll, I read this years ago and I've never forgotten it, wrote a little little statement about, it's just titled Attitude, and he says this, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance or giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we'll embrace for that day. We can't chase, we cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that's our attitude. He says, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. So it is with you. You're in charge of your attitudes. 10% is what happens to us. 90% is how we respond to it. And Peter says, you can choose to respond to suffering by choosing to be joyful. You say, but that sounds so unrealistic. You don't know the the kinds of suffering I've had, Greg. You're right, I don't. But I do know what Richard Wormbrand went through. Let me give you a little excerpt from his book again. He says this, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. As it is in captive nations today, it was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching, and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. He said, the following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him, bloody and bruised, on the prison floor. Slowly he picked up his battered body painfully straightening his clothing and said, quote, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued his gospel message. Wormbrand says, I've seen beautiful things. If men in that situation can choose to be joyful in preaching Christ, it can be done, right? It can be done. Choose joy. Don't be surprised. There are some reasons why joy is an appropriate response. And Peter gives us one of them in verse 13. He says, because when you, when you suffer, you share in Christ's suffering. When you suffer you, for Christ, you're sharing in his sufferings. So there's a, uh, in some sense, two, two things really come out of this. Uh, in some sense, in a limited uh, sort of a way, when we suffer for Christ, we are tasting a, a small bit of what he tasted for all of us. When he endured beatings and was crucified on our behalf for our sin. But what else Peter has in mind here is that their suffering is evidence of their union with Christ. Put it another way, he's saying to them, keep on suffering joyfully because when you suffer, it makes clear that you're joined to Christ and that you belong to Him. Because like Jesus was saying, when they come after you, it's not really you they're coming after, it's me that they hate. And so when you're united to me, they're going to 
take their hatred for me out on you. And that's just further evidence that you belong to me. Joseph's son, another Romanian pastor who was in prison during the same time that uh, uh, Richard Wormbrand was in prison, said this, This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I'm not a lone fighter here. I'm an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It's not my suffering. I only had the honor to share in his suffering. It's a beautiful way of seeing that, isn't it? Because he's right, and that's what Peter was saying. Keep on rejoicing. Because your sufferings as a Christian are not merely yours, they're Christ. And they give evidence that you belong to Him and you're united with Him. Verse 14 and 15, he goes on to tell us something else about why suffering, why we can choose joy in the middle of suffering. He says this, suffering is a blessing. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed. He says, because the Spirit of glory and, the, and, and of God rests upon you. Now, back in chapter 3, he said this very same thing. He said back in chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. So he keeps talking about suffering, and he keeps talking about when you suffer, it's a blessing. Now, back in chapter 3, we noted a couple of things that he said. This, this idea of being blessed is not the idea of being happy. It's, it's the idea of being highly privileged. And the way we phrased it back when we talked about it in chapter 3 was that it's a privilege to take blows for Christ. Do you remember that when we said that? It's a privilege. When he says you're blessed to suffer for Christ, what he's saying is you have a privilege to take blows on behalf of Jesus considering all the blows he's taken for you. And so Peter repeats that same phrase here. You're, You're blessed. You're blessed because you get to suffer for Christ. It's a great privilege to take blows for you in in light of what he's done for you. Again, beautifully illustrated in the life of Richard Wormbrand. He says one of our workers in the underground church was a young girl. The communist police discovered that she was secretly spread, had, had secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her, but to make her arrest as agonizing, as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. And suddenly the doors burst open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed. They roughly put the manacles on her wrist. She looked toward her beloved and then kissed the chains and said, quote, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented me on my marriage day. I thank him that I'm worthy to suffer for him. How about that? That's someone who understands what it is to have a privilege to take blows for Christ. Wernbrand goes on to say, That she was dragged off with the weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom, as you can imagine, left behind. Of course, they knew what happens to young Christian girls in the hands of communist guards. And yet her bridegroom waited for her faithfully. And after five years, she was released, a destroyed, broken woman looking 30 years older. And she said, quote, it was the least I could do for Christ. A young woman who understands what it means to say It's a great privilege to take blows for Christ. 
It's a blessing. It's not a curse. In chapter 4, he adds two nuances to that, what he said, the same thing back in chapter 3. He says this, because it's a blessing because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let me just break that down pretty easily. The word rest here is a word that means to give relief or refreshment. What he's saying here is it's a blessing because the Holy Spirit who already indwells you as a Christian will activate in a unique sort of a way in your life when you're suffering for him. And he will, in a very unique and supernatural way, bring refreshment into your life when you suffer for Christ. It's a blessing to suffer for Christ because the Spirit of God brings supernatural refreshment into the lives of those who suffer. You say, how exactly does that Holy Spirit refresh you? I don't know, but you'll find out when you need it. That's the answer. It was said of John Rogers that as the flame was rising around him, that he literally washed his hands in the flame as though it had no effect on him. I suspect that's because the Spirit of God was refreshing him in some way. But it's a promise from the Lord. It's a promise from the Lord that we don't need to be afraid of suffering, that we don't need to be afraid of persecution for our faith, because we have a Spirit who indwells us, who is more than capable of of, of strengthening us for the task and for refreshing us along the way so that we hold fast. So there's no reason to not be blessed as we suffer. And there's no reason to not be joyful even in it. Because we have a wonderful Savior who holds us through it. The second note he gives us here that he hasn't said before is this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. That just kind of stands to reason, right? He wants to make it clear. I'm talking about suffering for the cause of Christ, not suffering for being stupid. Sometimes we do stupid things and we suffer for it. Peter says, that's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. I'm telling you what Christ promises to those who suffer unjustly on his cause. These are promises to them. But if you're a thief or a murderer, you better expect suffering and it's going to be a little different experience. But he adds to that, even an evildoer or a meddler. And this word meddler is odd. It means one who meddles in things alien to his calling. An agitator or a troublemaker. You think, okay, I get that for a murderer and a thief, but why does he have meddler in there? What is he saying to him? He's saying that you need to live your lives in, in, in the midst of your society in such a way that you live a peaceful life and you're not stirring up trouble in your society and in your culture and around you, that you're not doing things and saying things and acting in ways that bring upon you suffering unnecessarily. Don't be an agitator, don't be a troublemaker. In your society. I mean, maybe he's talking about disruptive and illegal activities that interfere with the smooth functioning of society and government. But you know people like that, right? I know people like that that are Christians who love to get things stirred up and say things provocatively on purpose in order to agitate and irritate and provoke other people. That's not persecution for Christ when you get a knock in the head for that. That's persecution for being an idiot and for not representing Christ well. And Peter says, you need to make sure that the way you live isn't what's bringing on the persecution. These promises relate to those who are living a godly and peaceful life in their society. 
for whom suffering comes simply because they love Christ. Second Thessalonians 3.11, listen. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, Paul writes, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Stop being busybodies. That's the same thing as meddling. Serve the Lord and work quietly and live a peaceful life with your family. So to suffer is a blessing, Peter says. In verses 16 through 18, he says you need to remember the big picture, though. Remember the big picture. This is another, another thing that's helpful. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It might seem a little confusing, and we could really spend a whole sermon on this, but I want to just summarize it uh, rather succinctly. The household of God he's talking about is the church. And there's this Old Testament theme that runs all throughout the Old Testament that when God brings his judgment, it begins with his people. And we see illustrations of that all throughout the Old Testament. That when God brings judgment, he brings it on his people first, and then he moves out from there to the pagan society. And so Peter certainly has that theme in mind as he writes this. But what he's saying here is this, that that the suffering that comes into the lives of believers is a part of God's ultimate judgment over sin in general. That our suffering kind of falls as a subheading under the general suffering, the, the general judgment of God that he's bringing on the world for sin and for people's participation in it. There's a sense in which all of the suffering in our lives, even the unjust suffering that we that we endure is a part of God's ultimate judgment on sin and, and our participation in that. There's a difference, and the difference is what he's trying to delineate here. The difference is this. For believers, that suffering is a temporary, is a temporary little slice of God's judgment. But for people who are not believers, it's a permanent thing that's coming at the end. So Peter's painting a contrast. He's saying, look, it's one thing to suffer, but when you're suffering, keep the big picture in mind. You're you're dealing with a little tiny slice of the judgment of God on sin as a believer. But when Christ is revealed at the end, when he comes in his glory, or as Peter says, when his glory is revealed, when Christ returns and his ultimate judgment is laid out on the world, because of your standing in Christ, you'll be spared from that. But the people who don't know Christ will not. For you, your suffering is a temporary little slice of the judgment of God on sin. It will end when you stand before the Lord justified because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's the way it is for you, Peter says, can you imagine how it's going to be for those who don't know Christ? Who will spend eternity enduring the full judgment of God. He says to Peter Wormbrand, what you've endured is a small slice of the judgment of God on the world for sin. It's nothing compared to what the unbelieving are going to find when they stand before their judge at the end. And they hear, away from me, I never knew you. And they go out into eternal judgment. When our suffering is put into the big picture of what God is doing in the world and what he's ultimately going to do to sin in the end, it helps us, doesn't it? We're reminded this is a small slice. And it's bad and it's not fun, although it's effective. But it will end. Those around me who don't know Christ have something coming that will never end. And will be unimaginably worse. 
That's what Peter's trying to say here. Remember the big picture. And the last thing he says in verse 19 is this. How do you navigate the fiery trial? Here's what you do. You entrust your soul to God and you do good. That's, you know, I like short and simple and clear. Maybe unlike this sermon, I'm not sure. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator and do good. When the suffering comes, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to make a choice to uh, approach this suffering with joy instead of shock and surprise. And in the midst of it, I'm to entrust my life to my creator and do good. Entrust is a banking term that he uses. A deposit for safekeeping. It's the same thing that Christ used on the cross when he said to his father, into, my, into thy hands I what? I entrust, I commit my spirit. Saying the same thing. Entrust yourself to your creator. He's a good creator. He's a good God. He's a good God who loves you enough to send his son. You can trust him. You can trust him. So hand yourself over to him. Stop trying to fight the process. Stop trying to get out of the the trouble and out of the trial using your own human sort of methodology. Stop trying to make it go away too fast. Just entrust yourself to Him. Say, okay, God, you've brought this into my life. You've got my life. It's yours. You're good and you love me. Do with it as, do with it as you need to. Do with it what you need to do. Bring what suffering is necessary to be effective. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator and do good. I love the last part, do good. Don't withdraw inward and ignore the world. Isn't that what we want to do? When suffering comes into our life, oh my goodness, go look in the mirror. Uh, You know, my world is falling apart. Whoa, what was the the old show? Were they saying um, gloom, despair, and agony on me? Hee-haw, that's it. I was a little tyke. I was a little tyke when that show was on. Some of you remember hee-haw, right? We want to get in the mirror. We want to sing that song to ourselves. Oh, you know, the world is falling apart. Whoa, it's me. And just kind 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 of collapse inward. Feeling sorry for ourselves. Forgetting everybody around us. Peter says, resist that. Don't do that. He says, entrust yourselves to your creator and do good. Go do good. Go find some good to do while you're suffering. You say, but it hurts. How are we going to do good? I mean, it just hurts. And I, I want to weep and I want to sit on the bed and I don't want to do anything. He says, do good. Close with another illustration of this issue from Wormbrand. Listen to this. He says when we were, he talks about how they determined in prison that they would tithe. He says, when we were given one slice of bread a week and dirty soup every day, we decided we would faithfully tithe even then. So every tenth week we took the slice of bread and we gave it to our weaker brethren as a tithe to the master. Even in a prison cell with such horrific suffering, Here's a man who understood what it was, a group of men who understood what it was to entrust their soul to their creator and to find some good to do. They can find some good to do in that environment. We can find some good to do in ours. Listen to this. He said later on the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Because under communism, communists and even communist rulers were put in prison as often as their adversaries. He said now the torturer and the tortured were in the same cell. 
He said, and while the non-Christians showed their hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. He said, I've seen Christians give away their last slice of bread and the medicine that could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who is now a fellow prisoner. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And say it with me. Do good. Do good. One of the best things you and I can do when suffering comes our way is to abide by that simple principle at the end. Lord, I haven't asked for this. Lord, I don't want it. Lord, it isn't fun. But I'm going to entrust my soul to you because you're a faithful and loving creator. And I'm going to go look for some good to do somewhere. To find someone to do good for. When Christians live like that, when Christians behave that way in the midst of suffering, it has an impact that is you can't put words to. If you continue to read his book, he talks of torturers who turn to Christ because of the ways the Christians in these prisons behaved. Because he watched them. Because they watched them entrust their souls to their Creator and do good. And that good just shined a brighter spotlight on their evil hearts. And the Spirit of God can use that to open them up to the Gospel. So what do we do when the fiery trials come? How do we navigate them as Peter has told us now three times? Well, don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. We recognize that in many ways, it's a blessing to be able to take some blows for Christ. We actively decide we're going to choose to be joyful in the midst of it. Make that choice. And we choose to, to not turn inward, whining and complaining and feeling sorry for ourselves, but we simply entrust our souls to a faithful God. We look for some good to do somewhere. When we live like that under fiery trials... The product that gets developed in our life is a product, it's a kind of a gold that can't be made any other sort of a way in our character. And it's a witness that shines for a a watching world to see. More than anything, it glorifies our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, or if you're suffering, or if you're not, or if everything's great. And I pray that you would burn these thoughts into your mind. That you'd remember John Rogers. You'd remember Richard Wormbrand. Maybe read about more of those folks who've modeled this kind of truth in their lives in the midst of horrific suffering. Because as you do that, it begins to steal you up on the inside and prepare you. Should that be the calling on your life or mine? These are truths that we need in our toolbox. Because if we wait till the time comes, it's too late to develop it then. We want to be the kind of believers that when the, when the, when the waves crash in, we're still standing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to talk about these things. It's not fun to talk about pain and suffering and trials. It's not. We'd rather talk about love and joy and peace and goodness and all the wonderful things that are in your word. But yet here in this brief letter, you've, by the pen of Peter, brought to our attention three times this issue of suffering. So we believe that you would 
have us to listen to what you've said. That you have some purpose in teaching us these things. Lord, we live in, in comfort today. We live without any threat to our lives. In fact, in many ways it's still fashionable in this nation and in this culture to be a Christian. But we know we're not ever promised that tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. So while we have the opportunity, Lord, may we, may we give full attention to principles like this and burn them in our hearts. We pray that you do that by your Spirit so that when the day comes in our life, that the fiery trial is upon us. We'll be ready. We'll be able to choose joy. We'll be able to regard it as a blessing to take some blows for you. And we'll be able to entrust our souls to you and go find good to do. You must work in us to make that the reality, though. So we pray even right now you would begin to do that in our lives. And Lord, for those who are in this place this morning who don't know you, Jesus as Lord and Savior, they've never come to that moment where they've placed, confessed their sin and entrusted their, their very souls to you for their eternal salvation. They should be terrified at what they've heard this morning because there's a judgment that's coming. And it's an eternal and awful judgment. I like anything this world knows. Reserved for those who have rejected you. Pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would come running to you this morning and find your forgiveness full and free and eternal life is their reward, we pray.